Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, welcome. We're delighted that you're here, and we're going to open up the Word here in a moment, but just a little bit of an introduction before we get started this morning. Um, In our Unlikely Heroes discussion, we've mostly been talking about men, but this morning, as, as Meredith mentioned, we're going to talk about the life of Hannah. And I just want to pause and give a couple of introductory comments there. One of the things you want to understand is that sometimes the Bible gets a rap, and I'm going to call it a bad rap, because of the way people say it's responsing, it's response, it's engaging with women. And it downplays the role of women or that kind of thing. And I just want to remind you for a moment that from the scripture, that's not really what you see directly. In, in the book of Genesis, God said it's not good for Adam to be alone, and he created a woman. And of course, um, when Adam saw her, he said, whoa, man, and that's how he named her, okay? So, so from the very beginning, you can begin to see that, that, um, that God was saying, listen, the woman's role and the woman as a person is very, very important. But the Bible also seems to communicate that in other ways. When you get to the Gospels, Jesus had 12 disciples, but he also had a group of women who were his financial supporters and engaged. And wherever he went, they went. They essentially were picking up the bill half the time for him. And recently, when I was teaching at a Bible college down in Florida a couple weeks ago, um, and I was teaching through the book of Romans with them, I came to Romans 16, and it was stunning to me, really, There's 27 names listed at the end of Romans 16, and 10 of those names are women's names. And not only are they women's names, seven out of 10 don't just get their names listed, they get a commendation. Paul says something positive about them. In fact, there's more women that get commendations percentage-wise than there are men in Romans 16. And all the women say to that, amen, that's right, okay. So the point is, is is that God does not downplay the role or the personhood of a woman. And you're going to see that really today in Hannah. We've seen some unlikely heroes in in Asa and Nicodemus, but the courage that Hannah has in the face of her difficulties is really remarkable. In some ways, it's almost superior to all the other heroes we've already looked at. And so I think by the end of this morning, you'll, you'll probably agree with me in that, that Hannah's faith in the face of difficulty is absolutely remarkable. Well, with that in mind, will you stand with me for the reading of the scripture? I know you were just standing, but we do that here out of respect for the word and, uh, and an honoring of the word. Um, Meredith read the first two verses of, her, of Hannah's prayer in, second, in 1 Samuel, but I just want to give you the context. This is the prayer she prays when the son she longed for is the one she gives up to the temple to live at the temple, okay? This isn't past, this isn't, this isn't God's really good, this is God is really good, and I am surrendering my son to the Lord. So with that in mind, just follow along. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, there is none besides you, there is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And those who 
were full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry cease to hunger, and the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. And the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The pill, four are the pillars of the earth, or the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Finally, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You may be seated. I wanted to start with Hannah's song, but that's not really Hannah's story. That's her song. And we'll come back to that briefly at the end, but I want you to see again how she is praising the Lord. Now, just kind of put that on pause, set it for the end of the message, and let me tell you a little bit about her story. There's three things you need to know about Hannah's challenges, and here they are before we talk about Hannah's responses. Here's the three things. Her family situation was not ideal. That's right. Perhaps you come into fellowship this morning and you say, Phil, my family situation is not ideal. When I go on Facebook and I see all those perfect families, okay, um, I'm just telling you they're not perfect, but I see all those perfect families, I feel like, man, what do I even have to offer? My family situation is difficult. I made mistakes in the past. My spouse made mistakes in the past. Our kids made mistakes in the past. Our family situation is not ideal. Neither was Hannah's. Here's the second. Her emotions were all consuming. You will see a transparency to her emotions, and we'll unpack that for you in a second. And here's the third one. Her leaders were insensitive to her pain. These are her challenges. If any one of those resonates with you, then sit tight for Hannah's response, because it's going to amaze you, okay? So let me talk to you about her family situation. Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Okana and the son of Jehoram, and the son of Elihu, and the son of Tohu, and the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, multiples, right? But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Watch this, verse 6. And her rival, that is Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as he went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Now, for just a moment, let's talk about this for a second. You'll notice immediately that the man had two wives, okay? And he was legitimately, in biblical times, married to both of them. I just need to talk about that for just a second. The Bible is not presenting polygamy as an option. That's why when God, and the only way you know that is because there are polygamous relationships in the Bible, right? But that doesn't mean that God affirms them. You look at how God starts the process. Um, he put Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, in the garden. He didn't put multiple wives in the garden. He put one wife in the garden for Adam. Not only that, Jesus, looking back at that 
picture in the Gospels says, listen, from the beginning it was not so, for God put Adam and Eve in the garden together. He says, God created a wife for a husband. God singles that out. So what you see in the Bible, and this is helpful, is some, you see the issue of polygamy, but you see the confusion and complications and difficulty of it. And that should be a stark warning to anyone who is saying, well, you know, I have this with my wife, but I have maybe this other friendship with somebody else. Hold, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. You just gotta know from the beginning that's gonna create deep complications because God isn't affirming that. God's showing you in this account how dangerous and disastrous that is as it is here. Now, you'll notice something else about Hannah's situation that makes her family, uh, family situation far from ideal. She struggles with infertility, okay? And that's a struggle for her, a very real struggle. And for just a moment, let me snap you out of our culture and send you back into that culture. There is no social security. There were not retirement accounts. Your ability to be cared for in your old age was directly attached to how many children you had, right? They would care for you as you got older. There wasn't convalescent homes. There wasn't, there wasn't that kind of insurance. There wasn't anything. You needed kids or else when you got old, you were going to be homeless, right? And so here is this purpose, and you can almost see it right in the beginning verses. Like, you see that phrase, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of? It occurs four times. It's almost like the writer of Samuel is saying, listen, I want to emphasize that Hannah had no children by saying, um, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. This is a difficult, difficult thing. Not only that, you'll notice that Hannah's name is first in the list. Uh, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Most students believe that what probably happened was he married Hannah first, and then he couldn't have children with her, and so he picked up a second wife to have children, and that's what happened. She had many sons and daughters, right? But that wasn't the only part of it. Here's what happened. Every time they went to worship, Shiloh is where they worship. Pause, a little bit of historic, historical background here. I know we always think of Jerusalem as where they worship, but this is prior to King David taking Jerusalem, setting that up as the capital. This is before King David's even born, so you gotta go back um, to uh, Samuel's, the beginning of Samuel's life. Jerusalem isn't the center, Shiloh is the center. That's where they're gonna go and worship. And there isn't a big temple there, there's a tabernacle there that they drug out of, um, carried through the wilderness, and they've set it up at Shiloh, which is about 20 miles north of Jerusalem, so it's not the same location, but that's where people went to worship, and that's where they go. And I was just listening to uh, Dr. Doug Bookman, um, great Bible scholar. I know him casually. I wish I could call him a good friend, but I don't know him that well, right? So just complete transparency there, but he is brilliant. And I was watching a video where he was at the archaeological dig of where Shiloh was, he said, this is where we anticipate Shiloh was, where they were worshiping. And he said, what you can see is this flat area, which is where Shiloh would have been, where the tabernacle would have been. And you can see the mountains. He said, here's what you want to know about those mountains. That when the people came to give a sacrifice, they come and give their sacrifice, the priests would cut it up, and they give portions of the sacrifice back to the people to go eat and enjoy the meal. And he said, you can kind of see in the mountains, the kind of mountains that kind of wrap around, that's where they went. And here's what you got to know. In that mountainous range that kind of surrounds that valley, they have found truckloads of old pottery, right? Because Shiloh was where people came to the temple for many, many years. They get their portion, they go up to the mountains to sit down and have dinner together, and frankly, their children would break the dishes, okay? And then they leave them there, right? 
So all of that has a historical background to it. So just imagine now momentarily, there's the valley. They go there to worship. They get their portions. Now they're going up to sit down and have their picnic together. And when they do that, Penina looks down, and there is Hannah with more food than all of her kids got. And there she is provoking her grievously to irritate her because she can see that Elkina cares for his first wife more than he cares for the second wife. And notice this, it went on year by year by year. How many years? At least enough years to have multiple sons and daughters. That's the picture. And what I want to show you next is this truth, that Hannah's emotions were all consuming. And you kind of find that in the text, directly in the text. Not only was her family situation less than ideal, but her emotions were all consuming. Look at verse 7. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, the word wept is the word we get lament from. And we kind of think that we got to hide our emotions. Hide, hide, hide your emotions. Don't reveal them. But the Hebrews didn't see it that way. They actually publicly lamented. They wept and they wept loudly. And it had affected her in such a way that she wasn't even eating. But notice this next phrase um, as well. It says, why is your heart sad? Now, that word sad is literally a word that means to break to pieces, like that pottery up on the hill. Elkina is saying to her, Hannah, why have you broken up your heart like this? Like, you can't have a child, and I get it, but it's like you have intentionally just smashed to pieces your heart. But I notice something else a little later in the text when Eli finds her. Look at verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Let me unpack those words for you real quickly. Deeply distressed um, combines two words. One is the idea of bitterness, and the other is the idea of breathing in and breathing out. Like every time she breathed in and breathed out, all she could think of was her pain. Wow. We all have moments like that, don't we? That we remember being hurt being, um, being um, lied to, perhaps. We remember that someone, someone hurt us, and all we can think about is the pain. If you've lost a child, if you've lost a parent, if you've lost a good friend, you know what it's like in that grieving process. You breathe in, you breathe out. You breathe in, you breathe out. Someone asks how you are, you say, I'm, I'm okay, or I'm great, and you're not really great. You're breathing in and breathing out the pain. Okay? That's deeply distressed. But notice that last part of the word, wept bitterly. Um, th- that actually, if you look it up in the Hebrew, is two words, the same word, wept, back to back. It's like she wept, wept. She double wept. She twi- two times weeping. She wouldn't stop weeping. That's why she wept bitterly. There's, there's something to know here that there, and you'll see this in a second, um, Hannah, in her response to her pain, is transparent with her emotions. But I just want you to see, they're all consuming. She's deeply distressed, and she wept bitterly. We'll come back to that verse in a second, because there's something else hiding there that's beautiful. Here's the final thing. Her leaders were insensitive to her pain. Okay, this is just a conversation for the men only, okay? Um, Men, what you're about to hear is what you should not do or tell your wife when she's expressing pain, okay? So here it is. You ready? Just look how insensitive these two men are to her pain. And her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Okay. First rule, guys, never say that to your wife. Okay. Notice what he is saying. 
Am I not good enough? See how he turned the attention to himself? That's not on her pain. Her pain is real, her pain is, is severe, her pain is difficult, um, and he hasn't backed Penina off, that's what he should do, but he just says, am I not enough? Okay. And note this, the spiritual leader, Eli, the priest, okay, when she goes to the temple, Hannah was speaking with her heart, verse 11 says, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard, and therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. That also is not something to say, okay? Just for a moment, notice, there are two men who speak to her, and they are absolutely, just say the word with me, clueless. That's exactly right. All the women said, clueless, and they've, they've, they've seen that demonstrated before among men, okay? The point is this, there is pain and her leaders are clueless. Now that's convicting to me as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. Sometimes we're clueless. So we just need to ask better questions as we're leading. Now, okay, that's our challenge, but that's not the good news. The unbelievable good news is how she responded. We all have challenges. Yours may be different than Hannah's. Yours may be the same. Yours may be different than mine. Yours may be the same. The point is, how we respond to those challenges is where Hannah really, really, really shines. So here we go. Number one, three things, six things you want to understand about Hannah. Number one, be transparent. Don't hide your pain. Be transparent. Don't hide your pain. She struggles with infertility. The whole world knows. It's not just her that knows. It's not just her that's keeping the struggle. She obviously has shared it. And she's not afraid to share it. It's hurtful, right? You can put any pain you have in that place, in that moment, and I just want to remind you, we're encouraged from Hannah to be transparent. Find a way to say, when someone says to you, how are things, find a way to say, to point to God's faithfulness, which we sung about this morning, but Hannah's going to give you this incredible paradigm that you can't actually be transparent and say, I'm having a hard time right now. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'll show you that again in the text. Note this. The text says, therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. It showed up and how she ate. And Elkanah, her husband, said, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Notice that when he says that, he may not understand her, but he knows what the problem is. That's why he says, am I not more to you than 10 sons? He gets it. He, he can tell. Hannah obviously has shared transparently what the problem is, okay. even though her husband's clueless. I love the way that uh, Mother Teresa captured it in these words. Honesty and transparency make you vulnerable. Be honest and transparent anyway. Like, there it is, right? The reason we don't like transparency and honesty is because we feel like we'll be judged, like people won't understand, like, like you don't know my hurt and my pain. Now, I'm not saying we should go out gossiping, but I'm saying there should always be a select group of people that know what we're struggling with. Be honest and transparent anyway. Here's the second idea, and it's really challenging, this second one. Be non-retaliatory. Don't avenge yourself. Be non-retaliatory. Don't avenge yourself. When, when you first read the story of Hannah, like, I just keep reading it, looking for her to do something. Like, I keep thinking, she's got to kick back. Like, for years and years and years, this other woman who lives in her home provokes her, irritates her, does all this stuff, and there is no retaliatory response. That's really remarkable. Because we are prone, when someone hurts us, to immediately not act godly, but to react. 
None of that is in her life. You just don't see it. You just don't see it. And notice how challenging it was. Look at verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her year by year by year by year. It went on for a long time. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 12 here. Romans chapter 12 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, here's what you got to see. You cannot understand what it means to live peaceably with all until you look at what follows in verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. If you say, listen, this person hurt me, and man, am I going to hurt him back. Okay, you're not living like Hannah. You're not. And I am telling you that you're not living like Romans 12 charges you to live. Believe room to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, which means you and I are not to be the judge, jury, and executioner. We don't wear all three hats. Right? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You say, I like the last part of the verse. Let me just do that. Okay? No, that's not what it says. It's not what it says. And then it goes on to say, do not be overcome with evil, which tells you that if you choose that path, okay, you just can't parcel a little bit of bitterness out. It doesn't work like that. You start acting in bitterness and malice, and it feeds it. You want to do more of it. You want to do more of it, and then you just can't stop it. That's why it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If there is someone in your life that has hurt you, by all means, you should work through the process of restoration. And if they remain in a pattern where they, are still, um, where they still have not repented and, and, and are non-restorative, this is how you live at peace with them. You don't keep exercising your revenge on them. Hannah is non-retaliatory. She leaves it up to God. Hannah is prayerful. She depends on the Lord. Be prayerful. Depend on the Lord. There is one verse. I'm going to say this probably a ton of times in my unlikely hero discussion, but there is one verse that is so powerful, I just want you to see it in Hannah's life. Here it is. Look at this. She was deeply distressed. I already told you what that is. Breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, bitterness, breathing out, bitterness. She is hurting. And she has wept bitterly. She weeps, weeps, that all she can do is weep. And look what shows up in the middle of that, right? Just say it with me. She what? There is nothing else in the verse. That's what makes it so cool. That tells you how difficult it is for her. It tells her she, you, she just can't stop with the weeping. And right in the middle of it, the only thing that is there is praying to the Lord. She hasn't gone to her husband. She isn't retaliating against Penina. She isn't even um, going to Eli the priest because he doesn't even recognize her pain. She's just praying to the Lord. Wherever you are, that's how you overcome bitterness. And somewhere in this study, all of a sudden it occurred to me, like, that's the pattern for suffering. When you and I are suffering, this is what we are to do. And then it occurred to me, like, wow. I got there first by thinking, well, that's what Jesus did in the garden And then it occurred to me, no, 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 no. That's what he actually did too on the cross. Look at this. Seven statements Christ makes from the cross. Father, forgive them, prayer. Number four, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Prayer. Number seven, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit, prayer. 
That is why he can look to the, pre, the, the thief next to him and care for him. Today you will be with me in paradise because he's prayed. That is why he can look down and see his mother and see John the disciple and care for them. Women, behold your son. Son, behold your mother because he's prayed. Then he prays again. You say, I am thirsty. He's saying, I am thirsty because he's actually thinking of himself. You could say that or you could understand that he turned away drink earlier, but he takes it now. Why? Because his vocal cords are so parched that he can't say what he needs to say and he wants to say, which is, it is finished. He declares that he has accomplished what God has asked him to do. And then he wraps it up with prayer. Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. That is how you're supposed to pray in suffering. We don't pray in suffering. We complain in suffering. We look for someone else to listen to our pain in in suffering. Hannah gives you this incredible response. Be prayerful. Number four, be surrendered. Trust that God knows best. Whatever your difficulty, whatever your pain, you want to trust that God knows best. Now, it's a little confusing here, and I just want to clarify something, that what marks Hannah is absolute surrender. But when you first read it, it sounds like she's bargaining with God, okay? She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And it sounds like um, if you answer my prayer, then I'll give him to you. Okay. I want you to think about it differently. The reason she vowed a vow is because when they... Um, went for the sacrifice and the food was cut up, sometimes you would take that food and sometimes you'd say, I'll not eat that food, I'll keep a vow to the Lord. And so there was a place for her to make a vow in her worship. Okay. But what I want you to see is this is more than that. This isn't simply her saying, I'm cutting a deal with God. Okay. And the reason I know that is because when she actually gives birth to Samuel, she doesn't take back Samuel and say, ah, okay, it's a vow. Or she doesn't keep it like a vow, like, okay, I'll give him up even though that's the vow, the vow I made, she says, my soul rejoices in the Lord when I give this boy up. This isn't a vow. This is surrender. And Larry and Sue um, Richards clarified that when they write, some have taken Hannah's vow as bargaining with God, but what happened in Hannah's heart was that she had come to the place where she was willing to give up to God the one thing that had become most important to her in life, a son. And his prayer was not an act of bargaining, but an act of surrender. Whoa. Okay. In giving up to God, the thing most precious to her, Hannah found inner peace. Maybe that's what you need to do in your suffering. Maybe you just need to recognize that, listen, there is something that I want so desperately. I just want that thing so desperately. And it can even be a good thing. In Hannah's situation, it would have been a good thing. But she wanted it so desperately that God asked her to surrender it. And that's what she did. Here's this fifth principle, be grateful. Praise God for each opportunity. Be grateful. Praise God for each opportunity. In fact, I won't just again, can I show you that in, in her psalm when she actually delivers Samuel to the temple uh, to, to leave him there and she travels home and she'll only see him a couple times a year, right? She is grateful. Just look at what she prays in that first prayer. Then Hannah prayed, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Hear that? New Living Translation renders it. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. Everything is about God, and there's joy in it. There's joy in it. 
But look at just how these verbs operate. The Lord makes uh, poor and makes rich. He brings, he raises, he lifts to make, uh, has set the world. He will guard your feet. Notice this, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge, he will give. Hannah says, it's all about what God does. It's not about me. And one final one, here it is. Be impactful, influence others through your sacrifice. Be impactful, influence others through your sacrifice. It is true that Hannah takes her four or five-year-old little boy to the temple, and she entrusts him to a man, Eli, who has not raised sons well, okay? Because she said, listen, Lord, I've surrendered him to you. And she does that, and he grows up. And she probably doesn't see him very often. She probably can't get down from Shiloh, from Rama up to Shiloh that often. You'll see why in a second. And there's this wonderful passage in chapter two that says whenever she would go back to worship at the temple, she would make another robe because you know this, if you're a parent, you know that whatever you put your kids in, when they start to grow, six, three weeks later, they've grown out of it, okay? And that's exactly what happens. She keeps making these robes because Samuel keeps growing and Eli's a man actually and he doesn't really care much about clothes so she's taking care of him, right? I gotta make this robe, I gotta make another robe, I gotta, Samuel's grown again, I gotta make another robe, I gotta make another robe. Here's what I want you to see. That Samuel grew up at Shiloh where the temple was. It would seem like that's where he should be, right? But look at this. When Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, they buried him in his house at Ramah. That's right. At the end of his life, he said, I want to be buried back where I've been living. And this is a really important question. Look at this. Ramah to Shiloh is a 15-mile walk through the mountains. Why would Samuel live so far from where he worked? Because that's where mom was. That's where mom was. When Samuel grows up, he becomes a priest and a judge for all of Israel. He says, Shiloh isn't my hometown. That's where I work. A 15-mile walk through the mountains, that's probably a day's journey for them, a day's journey back. So when he goes up there, he stays up there, but he always keeps his home where mom was. And that's because Hannah was impactful. She influences others through her sacrifice. Six ways we ought to live. Be transparent, be non-retaliatory, be prayerful, be surrendered, be grateful, be impactful. You should be able to at least pick one of those, if not all of them, if you're struggling, if you're hurting, if you're suffering. That's why Hannah is one of the most beautiful, unlikely heroes you'll ever meet. Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word this morning, to be reminded that it's rich, that it's helpful, that it's like it knows what we're going through because you know what we're going through. So I pray, Lord, that your word would help, your word would strengthen, um, your word would bring resolve, that you would help us live and think differently as a result. Thank you for Hannah's testimony, for her example, for how it just comes down through the ages to give comfort and encouragement and conviction to where we are today. Help us to live differently as a result of our response to your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.